0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Uh, With me today is Charles Leach, and uh, Charles is a very interesting guy because he works in the field of consumer insights, but his focus is on semiotic research and analysis, uh, which illuminates the deep cultural codes we use to make sense of everything from technical design to television advertising, and included in that is, guess what? music. So uh, I met Charles at a party a few weeks ago, and we got to talking about what I do and what he does. And we're really mutually fascinated at the prospect of uh, a discussion, um, you know, that we could have about semiotics and and skin vibration. So, you know, kind of pairing uh, our two backgrounds. So uh, of course, he was a a natural as a guest on No Sleep Till Sudbury. So Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what you do? Maybe just give us a little bit of a background and how it relates to the, the Goosebumps idea.
1: Yeah, of course. There's there's actually a bit of a divide between my professional life and my personal interest in in musical semiotics and the idea of Goosebumps. Or, or frisson, I think, is the other French word for it, which I, I like. It's funny, when you do a, a search for Goosebumps in Google, you get um, children's novels and operas and things like that. Yeah. And fris- some tends to be that more technical term, but anyway. Uh, yeah, my background is academic, so I did some graduate work in mass communications research that was really inspired by the idea of Goosebumps in music, quite honestly, uh, and trying to understand exactly how it was possible that music was able to do such a thing, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I experienced quite uh, quite young in life, uh, and I ended up taking quite a different tack on it that a lot of current Scholarly approaches towards musical goosebumps is taking now because mm-hmm. as you and I were talking about the other day, it's such a fairly popular thing. It seems to be popping up pretty regularly in people's feeds. There's that oft quoted article about correlating goosebumps with intelligence and musical mm-hmm. creativity and blah, blah blah that kind of thing. Um, I wasn't involved in kind of the pure neurological science part of it at all. I took more of a, of a cultural approach to it, mm-hmm. and so my master's degree and my PhD was really an exercise in trying to understand exactly how music was capable of communicating such complex uh, emotional content to people in some cases across hundreds of years a large part of my grad work was actually looking at modern recontextualizations of classical music as popular music and interested in how young generations and of course that includes us obviously (laughs) of course it does Right, of course, it does. Uh, how how baby boomers and Gen X, in particular, were able to experience that kind of intense emotional reaction to music that, in some cases, was composed in the 1600s. You know, I looked at the 1600s, 1800s, contextualized in modern film and modern video. People still feel the same way about it. Mm-hmm. I've actually got responses right now, even just talking about it. Just <laughs> about it's quite quite amazing. So my thesis kind of came out of that. Uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Semiotics, which is the study of signs and signification. So it's really the the process or method by which any form of communication actually works um, in our culture, which we can get into that a bit later on. Mm-hmm. I now use semiotics as a market research methodology. I'm a, a partner in a firm called ABM Research, and it's one of the three pillars we use to understand consumer reactions to branding and packaging and advertising. We don't do a lot of music. Uh, music is kind of the unfree are sort of the unconsidered, forgotten uh, media text in most communications, in part because it's so very difficult to talk about how musical impact actually works. We actually lack the language to talk about how music makes us feel. Hmm. It's quite a thing to do. So because of that, and because we're lazy, we tend to avoid that. We tend not to talk about things that are hard to talk about, and we talk about other things. And that means my musical interest tends to be more personal than professional.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, you came to the right place, because uh, today you get to talk about the musical aspect.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. okay, now you sent me over uh, a lot of songs, ranging from New Order to Colin Hay from Men at Work to Nick Drake, one of my favorites. So uh, yeah. what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to let you decide which of those um, you think best kind of complements our conversation here.
1: Absolutely. I may mean, have a laugh when you asked me to pick five songs, and my first reaction was... I'm sure Brent is kidding with the five <laughs> songs. Like give mean, five songs. Let's try. Let's try fifty, and then kind of go from there. And in the end, I kind of I ended up grouping them together a little bit. And and part of this is actually chronological the list that I gave you because you and I started talking about um, the role that Palestrina who is a, a Renaissance, Italian Renaissance classical composer, mm-hmm. the implication that he had on uh, on modern music, which I think was a new story for you. I don't believe you'd heard that story before. I not, no, no. Uh, so I, I thought that might be a good place to start. So there's, there's kind of a rough chronology to that, which I think is, is germane to the idea of Goosebumps. Perfect. Because uh, you led off, I think, with what had to be probably one of your stock standard interview questions, which is, what's the one song that gives you Goosebumps? Like, mm. what does it And I think, I'd like to think, without much hesitation, I gave you New Order's eight-minute version of The Perfect Kiss. You did, actually. You had goosebumps just talking about it. Oh, I'm thinking about it now, and I'm getting goosebumps. So great. So, But reflecting on that, of course, one of the reasons why that gives me goosebumps, and we can loop back on it later, is this idea of polyphony, Mm -hmm. which is multiple voices, technically, or multiple lines of music, For me, when I go through a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about, a lot of it is polyphonic. Not all of it. Nick Mm -hmm. Drake, for example, isn't, but a lot of it is. And polyphony, the story goes, only exists because of this guy called Giovanni um, de Palestrina. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is the one kind of responsible. So it's a great story. And after you and I talked about it, I actually went online and looked it up. And I found out that now scholars have started to... To chip away at this story, some of them are actually saying, well, maybe it's not actually as legitimate a story as people think, and mm-hmm. it's actually a legend or a rumor. But the story goes like this. The story goes that once upon a time, um, the world was ruled by the church, mm-hmm. and you really couldn't do anything if the church didn't agree. And they had incredible power because even politicians and government were worried for their souls and so they deferred to religious figures. And at the time, this is around the 1600s, there was this thing called the Council of Trent. Mm-hmm. And the Council of Trent was a whole bunch of church bigwigs and they got together and discussed what was the problem with religion and what threats were coming up and big SWOT analysis, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the story goes that, that at one point there was a great concern expressed at the current trend in music in the church, which at that time was polyphonic. So generally four voices, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. And there was concern that the musicality of masses and anthems was actually getting in the way of the lyrics, Hmm. which essentially was the scripture. And as far as the Council of Trent was concerned, the whole reason that music existed was to communicate the scripture. The whole idea was the lyrical content of the music. And if the music was getting in the way of communicating the scripture, that means it was essentially unreligious. And that's a problem. So the, the story goes that there was a conversation at the Council of Trent about banning polyphonic music because it was getting in the way of, of spreading the word of God. And so a composer who was very prolific at the time, whose name was uh, Palestrina, basically said, well, you tell you what, I actually can prove to you that this is not a problem. Um, and give me a couple of months. I'm going to give you some music that will demonstrate, in fact, how this is all going to work out for everybody. And so they gave him the opportunity he went away and composed this thing called the Missa Papa Marcelli, okay. which is named after Pope Marcellus, who actually only was a pope for about five weeks apparently. So um, kind of a, a, a weird title. But nonetheless, performed it for the cardinals of the Council of Trent. And this was music that was polyphonic, multiple lines, not just soprano, alto, tenor, bass, but in some cases split soprano and split um, alto lines, so a lot going on. Mm-hmm. But the scripture, the music was so carefully... Um, calibrated with the lyrical content that even though it was musically beautiful and very polyphonic, there was no question about what was being sung. You could hear the words, you could hear the scripture, it was very clear where you were in the Mass, and everybody was terribly impressed. And the story goes that the Cardinal at the time, a guy called uh, Cardinal Carlo Bomero, apparently then gave his blessing, said, you know what, I'm wrong, you're right, that's amazing, it's terrific, I know exactly where I am in the Mass, and you have our blessing, you can keep going. And from that point on, the whole tradition of polyphony was, was intact for all of rock music to later enjoy. <laughs> and if they had banned polyphony at that time, you know, the, the question is whether, in fact, any kind of polyphonic music would have ever been developed. It's possible that it never would have happened or it would have taken a very different run because all modern music that's polyphonic takes its genealogy, genealogy from that From that one instance. So that's kind of the first part where polyphony starts. Fascinating. The goosebumps, though, is more the second part. So if we move kind of forward in history a little bit, the second um, piece of music that I I gave you was actually the prelude and the Liebestad to Tristan in Isolde, which is a for written by Richard Wagner. And in particular, there's a a bit in there called the Tristan Chord, which is also really important and influential in the history of music um, and the idea of goosebumps. Uh, and the Tristan Chord was fascinating. Do you know that piece of music at all, went Do you into Wagner no, at all? No, I don't. Yeah, so Wagner is an acquired taste for many. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wagner came along at a really interesting time in musical history because everybody who composed up to him um, composed a lot of tonal music. Okay. So tonal music is Palestrina and Beethoven and Mozart. All of those classical guys they all composed in a tonal manner mm-hmm. and tonal means that whatever key you start the music in is the key you finish the music uh. in and it's very it's very rare not to be very clear what key you're in throughout the whole piece of music right so most mozart stuff right is in a key and it's in g sharp or it's in b flat or whatever whatever it is mm-hmm. and he might vary from that on a note or two but will resolve it very quickly just so that you're back in that key, and it always ends in the same key, very tonal. Okay. And that was musical tradition up until Wagner. And Wagner started to mess around with that. So Wagner got kind of bored with tonal music, and he started to experiment with atonal music.
2: Okay.
1: And the Tristan Chord was this landmark, very inflammatory piece of music, where right in the very first like three notes of the opera, mm-hmm. he ends on this really weird combination of notes which actually doesn't resolve and actually doesn't make sense and doesn't hew to the key that the first three notes of the opera in. It's atonal. Interesting. And, it's not- and everybody kind of flipped out when this happened. Everyone was like, what is that all about? Like, mm-hmm. how is that possible? It's called the Tristan Chord, very famous. Okay. And in part its fame has to do with the fact that Tristan and Isolde is a four and a half hour long opera and Wagner doesn't actually resolve that chord until the very end of the opera in the Libestud. And the Libestud, which translates as love-death, is the point where Isolde rejoins Tristan by dying and therefore is able to be with him in death. Okay. So that idea of joining with somebody finally in death, like the ultimate perfection of love through death, is Liebestod. And at that moment, when Isolde dies, that's musically when it resolves. Which means that for four hours and 25 minutes, mm. you're sitting there in the audience in a state of musical tension. And you're kind of uncomfortable because it's not resolving and you don't really know where it's going and it's excruciatingly tense for four hours and 27 minutes and then it resolves and when it resolves, all of a sudden the whole thing makes sense and of course, everybody's in tears. That's crazy goosebumps right there. Wow. Crazy goosebumps. That is fascinating. Music, as soon as you hear the, the, the Tristan chord as it kind of slides around, mm-hmm. that alone gives you goosebumps because you know that he's making some point about how frustrated human beings are in life with bigger issues like like love and passion and desire. It's all about how we... We live these lives of unfulfilled passion and unfulfilled desire. We never really get exactly what we want or everything what we want or who we want. And the opera is about the belief that the only time you're ever going to achieve really true satisfaction in life ever is through death. Wow. That's pretty heavy stuff. It's extremely heavy. And then there's a number of church composers who work with that kind of theme. So I also um, gave you a Thomas Tallis anthem called "Like as the Heart," mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of idea, a little bit more modern piece that was composed, I think, in the 1920s. So it's a little got some blues um, influences, still very church musicy, but kind of bluesy. And that also plays with the same idea of unrequited love and unrequited passion, and and the human condition and mm-hmm. how we live constant. Um, constant disappointment with our lives, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, the big goosebump stuff, like Tristan Chord and the uh And the Liebestand uh, is kind of interesting. Where I encountered it was actually in a 1987 film called Aria. Okay. I with that. Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, a film made up of 10 different segments, all done by a different composer. And the brief given to these, um, these directors was, take your favorite piece of classical music, whatever it is, and do a modern video of it. So it's mm. basically, it's classical music videos. And put 10 of them together, and we're going to make a movie of it. And so a French director called Frank Rodham decided he was going to do the Liebestand from mm. Tristan Isolde. And so he did this modern Las Vegas setting of these two young kids, Bridget mm. Fonda in her first credited screen role, looking you know all of 18 years old. Wow. Uh, and it's the story of these two young kids cruising up and down the Fremont Strip booking into a hotel room, um, having sex, and then committing suicide, which is oh. kind, of, kind of what the story of, of the Liebestand is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw this in 1987. I was 20 years old, and it just basically blew my head clean off my shoulders. Yeah. It's like, holy crap, never seen anything like it. And I was I wasn't really familiar with the music at that point, uh, and I was really struck by how modern the imagery was and how, how old the music was and how somehow... The music managed to match the imagery, even though there's hundreds of hundreds of years of history kind of between the two. Yeah. And this brought me to the idea of narrative congruence, which is this sort of fascinating concept that, that things can make sense as long as the stories that are being told are the same stories. And even though there might be 400 years between them, the story that Frank Rodham was telling visually was the same story that Wagner was telling musically. So when you put them together, they're congruent. Um, and then it all makes sense, and you can you can see where it's all going. Wow, yeah. I, I'm fascinated. I think this is this is terrific. It's a really it's a really neat uh, video as far as music videos go, especially for uh, for of Fonda, who is not really doing a lot these days. Sorry to say. Mm. So all of that, if you can believe it, all of that actually leads up leads up to New Order. So we talk about okay. li- and uh, and all of these are very polyphonic pieces, right? So Palestrina, very polyphonic. Tristan uh, and Isolde, you know, crazy polyphony going on, lots of layers of music, layers of sound. Mm-hmm. And I find the last four minutes of the long version of The Perfect Kiss, and for the purists that are going to be listening to this, we have to be very clear about the version we're talking about, because mm-hmm. there are about six different versions of The Perfect Kiss. And the only one that counts, in my estimation, is the 8.2 minute version. Which is the long version, the 12 inch kind of extended single, which has this kind of extended instrumental coda at the end. It goes on for about four minutes, which has the most amazing layering of kind of threads. And at one point, it's kind of reduced down to very kind of basic um, drum beats. There's kind of weird kind of synthesized crickets in the background. And then they start building it up. Peter Hook's bass line comes in, and then, you know, percussion comes in, and it builds and builds and builds. And it gets to a point where you think, wow, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you get to that point where you think that's pretty awesome, somehow they go up another layer and they they put a whole other layer of, of information. It gets even more intense and more loud, and the baseline gets even more crazy. And that kind of leap up into a different category of sound is a guaranteed 100% no fail ghost boop, uh, goosebumps moment for me, like every time. Wow. Yeah. And when I looked into it, I. I found that there's been some research done into the importance of context with musical goosebumps okay. and how it's not necessarily entirely to do with your emotional reaction to the music although that's kind of part of it mm-hmm. a lot that has to do with your expectation of musical context okay. and so when you listen to music especially when things like keys are involved if the music is kind of going along on a certain key and then that music changes keys maybe there's that gear shift change where you know it goes up a minor or yes. the, the, the composition does something that you're not expecting it to do yeah. that that shock is often the catalyst for goosebumps mm-hmm. because you have these set of expectations musically and they're, suddenly something there being disrupted and the disruption makes you think there must be something else going on here that's beyond my expectations and that and that is an insight that leads immediately into contemplation of the ineffable, right? That's, that's where you start thinking about the beauty of the world and the beauty of life and how there's there's a bigger world out there beyond the one that we often deal with, the one that we expect. And when music does something that you're not expecting it to do, you sometimes get that window into a larger existence or a larger consciousness and suddenly you get kind of a glimpse that maybe there's a whole system, a whole universe of meaning that exists beyond what we're kind of used to that we're never ever going to live in completely because it would probably just obliterate us with, with you know, with meaning. Mm-hmm. But even if little glimpses of it every now and again, that's a remarkable moment. And those are often triggered by those changes in time or changes in key signature or changes in, uh, changes in meaning. Wow. So do you think, Charles,
0: in your estimation, that people consider these things subconsciously? Oh, yeah,
1: 100%. I mean, that's, uh, I think... Um, most of that language is so very difficult to to grasp and to, mm-hmm. and to manipulate. And music in part is designed to to subvert all that, right? It's, mm-hmm. there's, there's that well-known misunderstanding about music as being a language, right? It's a, it's a truism that music is language. And if you spend 30 seconds actually looking it up online uh, or any kind of journal, you, you realize very quickly that in fact, academic consensus is it's not a language. We can't actually call music language. It's an effective system to communicate information at Mm -hmm. times, depending on what information you want to communicate, but it doesn't actually work like a language. You can't actually communicate meaning in any kind of comprehensible way to another person through music Mm -hmm. because semiotics works on an encoding and decoding basis, right? Mm -hmm. In order for us to communicate, I have to encode meaning with some kind of sign. Um, It can be a word. Maybe it's fashion. Maybe it's architecture, some kind of encoding. I've got to shoot it over to you somehow. And you have to then decode it, hopefully in the same way that I've encoded it. Mm -hmm. I say iPhone, and I'm pretty confident that in your mind's eye, you've got a picture of an iPhone, and then you and I can talk comprehensively about iPhones using that word iPhone as a code to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But music doesn't work like that. For starters, it's very hard to encode music. Only musicians can encode music. So you might send somebody a song. We've often done that, right? You Mm -hmm. make a mixtape for somebody and send it to them. But you're never really sure how they're receiving that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the decoding of that message can be so, so variable that it's not a very efficient way of telling somebody, I love you. I want to sleep with you. I want to marry you. Get out of my life. You're stalking me. Like any of the things you might use music to communicate, you can't actually be sure that any of that is actually happening. So it's actually not responsible in that way.
0: That's very, very interesting. I was, I was actually, as you were discussing that, I was going to make a joke, you know, about um, the consideration of the conventional mixtape and John Cusack's idea of, you know, conveying messages right. through, through music. But, but, wow, that takes on an entirely new context now when you think about that. Because, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't really think that part
1: through the, the decoding aspect of it. Totally. I, I have this mixtape that I held on to. Somebody gave it to me when I think I was 18 or 19 years old. Somebody wanted, to think, to date me, and it was all part of her courtship. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason, it, it wasn't going to work out. But I kept the tape because um, mm-hmm. the music film was pretty good. And I, I went through a thing a couple of years ago where I transcribed all of my, my cassette tapes into playlists just so I didn't actually lose the music. Mm-hmm. And when I revisited that playlist with all of the years now intervening between when she first gave it to me and then afterwards, of course, I saw very different musical themes coming through yeah. because the music that she chose now means something different to me than it did you know, back in, in 1983 when she first gave me the tape. Absolutely, it would. There's a great quote from Charles Lim that talks about how music doesn't actually communicate linguistic meaning because we rely on something beyond language. To fully comprehend how music works. Hmm. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Wow. So that's all pretty cool. Yeah. So that's uh, that was that was New Order, right? And then where do we get to after New Order? I think then I started to group some stuff together. I, it was funny. I was very aware when I put the list together, Brent, that a lot of the stuff that I put together was really sad. Mm. Uh, like that is sad music, mm-hmm. and that immediately made me think of um, made me think of Richard Ashcroft. Right, he's got that that great line in Bittersweet um, Symphony where he says, um, "I want to hear sounds that recognize the pain in me," mm. it's, which is the enduring appeal of sad music. It's always kind of this weird thing of why we enjoy listening to sad music. Why yeah. do we enjoy listening to sad music? Of course, that's the reason, is you know that if you can if you can tap into someone else's sadness, it makes you feel a little less alone in the world. I, I
0: absolutely but, agree with that, and and just um, I. I think we talked about this at the party. I, I really want to get a copy of my book to you because the the end of the book is is completely focused on that very idea. Ah, very cool. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I took it as a challenge. I thought, well, no problem. I could come up with fifty miserable songs that I get goosebumps from. But are there any songs that actually give me happy goosebumps? Mm-hmm. And so the the two that I came up with was uh, "Tongue Tied" by Group Love, mm-hmm. um, and the other was a, as a classic, "Which She Loves You" by the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, which I. I grew up to listening. My it was one of the things my dad used to have on rotation, and I and I group them together because they have a similar um, kind of infectious enthusiasm, mm-hmm. right? They're they're so very positive and so kind of unfettered in their emotional um, dedication. Mm-hmm. They're so they're so committed to the moment that it's hard to put that on and not be happy and not get kind of the feeling of goosebumps that you're in the presence of somebody who's really just said to hell with it. I am going for it, <laughs> yeah. and that's. What it, Let's put the most joyous sound that I can out in the world. Hey, you know, if all the notes don't fit, whatever. Yep. It's just it's just a sheer kind of overwhelming emotion that it is terrific. So those are guaranteed goosebump moments in a positive sense. But as you can see by my list, there's loads more of the of the um, of the more mellow ones, including, of course, Nick Drake. Yes, there, there was, there's a couple that kind of tie into that polyphony. So the the song "Wanna Wanna" by Dear Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, Like that, and that for me is in the same category as the song "Drained" by Silver Sun Pickups, which are mid-tempo songs, Um, and they kind of they they tick along, and somewhere around in the middle eight or the late chorus, they do that kind of unexpected shift in composition. They switch into an unexpected key. Of course, middle eights—that's what they're designed to do. But even within the expectation of middle eights, this was these are unexpected keys, and there's a kind of a transcendence in a couple of verses there that at the beginning of the song, you're not really expecting that. And so the first time you hear it, you're kind of taken by surprise. And then the more you listen to them, even though you're anticipating that coming, because we get so solidly set into the musical context that are set by, by keys, when they come along, it's still a lovely moment to realize that suddenly it's, it's shifted into a different space. Mm-hmm. So they, of course, do, they do that really well. But Nick Drake is fascinating. So I actually came to Nick Drake really late. And I think like a lot of people... I encountered him um, through River Man as a song on a compilation of songs, and I actually believe that River Man is on the same soundtrack as the Colin Hay song, I Just Don't Think I'll Get Over You, mm. which I th- I think is the um, the Garden State soundtrack. Okay. I think they're both on there. And so I actually um, enjoyed and listened to River Man for years until I actually looked it up and realized that it comes from 1969 mm-hmm. uh, released on january 1st 1970 which blew my mind i couldn't yeah. believe that a song that was so timeless like i would have had no idea that it was a 60 song because a lot of 60 songs they sound like they come from the 60s it, it, exactly it's not, a, it's, not, it's not a bad thing but that they they wear their their decade on their sleeve pretty obviously mm-hmm. and that was unlike any 60 song or even 70 song quite frankly that i had ever heard yeah really magical with the way it kind of shifts around that that atonality Mm -hmm. so there we see there we see bogner's legacy coming true right where he's nick drake starts off in a particular key but almost immediately slides into a different key and the more you slide around with chords and keys the more you actually become aware that you don't really know what key the song is in Mm -hmm. because it's not really in a key it's actually in several keys and the and the the slightly uncomfortable feeling that you get as you slide around those keys mirrors the emotional content of the song. Right. Uh, and that of course that's why you're supposed to feel the way you feel. Is right. because the music's not actually letting you settle in on one place. Very effective
0: stuff. Fascinating fascinating i'm a a big nick drake fan too as you know and my uh in to nick drake was not through riverman i think it was through a song called poor boy which he uh his first record brighter later i believe it was but his story was very tragic he was a very sad you know unfortunate figure and um I, i like that you're tying him into you know your overall premise here because i think that it's
1: completely apt yeah, I think there's a there's a solid line between Wagner's clear dissatisfaction with life and his musical expression of that, um, all the way through to you know poor Nick Drake, you know antidepressants exactly. and, and socially awkward and clearly not finding what he wants to find, but mm-hmm. finding some way of expressing it musically. Not a terrible tragedy that of course we lost him so um, lost him so young. Yeah. And Colin Hay, I think, is still going strong. Um, yeah. Yes. That's an interesting Goosebumps song, too, because one of the other elements that I think ties into Goosebumps is this idea of uh, personal experiences and visual. And a lot of my grad work had to do with the role that visual image plays in musical expression. Mm -hmm. Because our generation compared to our parents' generation, we're actually the first generation to to associate visual image with music in a mass-mediated way. So because we grew up with rock operas and with music videos and with artists who actually used visuals to establish um, benchmark interpretations of their music mm-hmm. in a way that our, our parents and our grandparents never, of course, had that, we actually think of a lot of our music as being as much visual as it is um, auditory. Uh, a lot of music we see in our mind's eye as, yes. as much as we hear it, because yeah. you, you know, you the first time you encountered it, you saw the video, or you saw it as a film soundtrack piece. You know, those are kind of fused. Mm-hmm. The process is called synesthesia, right? Which these is interpreting uh, interpreting input um, through different senses. Mm. So pe- people who can smell colors, or people who can visualize music. When your senses cross over, then you you have this thing called synesthesia. Uh, and I believe that our generation and the generation under us have kind of an institutionalized synesthesia when it comes to music we visualize it as much as we, as we see it. No question. And, you know, some bands actually can, you know, uh, base their careers
0: on that premise, you know, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. a little bit more visual than they were musical in fact.
1: Yeah. So I just don't think I'll get over you for me personally it was very much associated with, um, uh, with an experience in 2000 when my father died of brain cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the songs that was, um, figured very heavily in my grieving process because it's it's basically still I think to this day one of the saddest songs I've ever written. Mm-hmm. I, I I defy anyone to come up with a song that's sadder than "I Just Don't Think I'll Get Over You."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and the funny part of that was, even though I was a very big Minute Work fan back in the '80s, it actually mm-hmm. took me about six years to realize that that it was that Colin Hay. Uh, I had not pictured him as this you know burly Australian guy singing that song. I had yeah. A very, visual i never actually connected the artist's name with the person yeah. so it was it was fascinating to revisit the song after i'd heard it you know for a year or two thinking oh my god that's that's that? well, it's, Colin. who Hay, can it
0: be now colin Hay? yeah very uh, incongruent definitely
1: exactly so that and that's and that's sad in a classic sad way it's not only is the lyrical content very sad but the musical content kind of matches the lyrics mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's not so polyphonic it's more uh, more singer-songwriter style uh, but there, there's very little ambiguity in in what emotion that's designed to evoke in people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow! And then, are are you familiar with the Annie Lennox cover of "Every Time We Say Goodbye"?
0: No, I don't believe I've heard that.
1: Uh, so it, it comes from a a compilation album called "Red Red Hot and Blue," okay. uh, which was a cover of all Cole Porter songs hmm. that I think was designed as a um, as an AIDS uh, fundraiser, basically. So incredible number of songs on the on my albums, like twenty seven songs. Um, everybody came out of the woodworks to record their favorite Cole quarter song, mm-hmm. and so Annie Lennox does this completely straight version of "Every Time We Say Goodbye." Nothing fancy, not upgraded, absolutely as bare bones and as spare as you can possibly do it. I like that, uh, and it's her voice is extraordinary. Obviously, so it's it's really fantastic. But it's fun um, in a Goosebumps kind of way because Cole Porter played with that, that relationship between lyrical content and musical content by making sure that the music slid into the minor key right where the lyrics say that's so strange The change from major to minor. Mm. So in the music, it's a major key when you sing major, but then it slides into the minor when it changes from major to minor. So there's this lovely echo where you have the miracle, the, the musical change happens at the same time as the lyrical change. And then because minor keys in our culture are often associated with sadness and melancholy and longing and all those kind of negative things, yeah, to, ha- to, have that, to have that mirrored in such a spare way is also very effective. That's also guaranteed goosebumps moment.
0: Wow. So <laughs> you know, while we're on that topic of minor and major, um, I might be completely off track here. And uh, might be dumbing the concept down a little bit. <laughs> think about the the theme of Jaws. Right. So that's major minor major minor, correct? And 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 the minor key represents fear in that case. Would that be accurate to say?
1: I think so. Yes, in our culture, absolutely. mm Hmm. Yeah, it's a, they're in our, and it's interesting. It's culturally mediated, of course. So um, you and I both live and breathe in the Western culture, and that's the musical tradition that, that you and I both um, were brought up on and still breathe in. Mm-hmm. So it's worth just uh, as a as a sidebar to note that it doesn't necessarily translate in other cultures. We don't they don't assign the same emotional content to minor key um, as we do in Western culture. Really? So a lot. A lot of Asian music, Japanese music, for example, is, is completely atonal to mm-hmm. Western ears. And it sounds like the whole thing is done in, in minor keys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it can be, of course, very happy. And there's actually a lot of Western music that's done in um, minor key, which is actually very happy mu- music. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of very sad music that's done in major keys, right? Mm-hmm. So um, even simple examples like... Um, I think there's Michael Road, The Boat Ashore, I think, which is minor key, but a very happy song. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, yeah, anyway, there's several examples of that. So even as a rule, even in Western culture, we break it. But certainly in in modern times, it's pretty accepted to communicate fear and disease, not diseases and getting a disease, but Mm dis-ease. and, and concern and worry all those kind of um, anticipatory negative things with minor keys there's a film music um, theory that involves um, something called a megadrone so yeah. it's an academic Philip tag and he talked about the megadrone and next time you listen to um, uh, or watch a trailer for a movie any kind of action film mm-hmm. you'll always hear this thing called a megadrone and all trailers that have an action theme or a conflict in them that's kind of um, a very overt will start with a megadrone mm-hmm. ooh you're seeing going on in the background, <laughs> and it's and it's it's always kind of uneasy. And mega drones make us really nervous because they're kind of subterranean, yeah. which means sp- spatially we think of them as being kind of underneath us, yeah. which we don't like. That's kind of weird, and that's that's down where hell is. So things that are low and base tend to be be evil and associated with the devil. Yeah, and and that will resolve itself at the end of the trailer, so you'll feel kind of excited about it. Mm-hmm. But while that mega drone is going on, you're not in a happy place so the jaws dreams very much works like that right and because it repeats if it just ended on the major you'd be like oh okay well i guess that ended fine because that's fine no big deal maybe it was a dolphin wasn't a shark after all (laughs) because it it keeps going from major to minor major minor major minor major minor you're actually never quite sure where it's going to land exactly it's going to finish on the minor and if it finishes on the minor i'm still at risk of being eaten yes yes exactly Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah, the um, the the film music theory side of it is is really interesting. Film music theory is dedicated to exploring, crassly, the more manipulative parts of music because film um, music composers are very much about about creating emotion, Mm -hmm. and it's a well known tenant in film music theory that whenever you put film and visual, whenever you put visual image and music together. The two, the two medias play a very different role. Mm-hmm. What you look at, the visual aspect, that exists to tell people what they should be thinking about. Okay? It gives you a subject. Mm-hmm. Right? Here's a picture of something. Think about that. But the music that accompanies a visual image, that exists to tell you how to feel about what you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. So you have a picture and if the music is sad, you're supposed to think about that picture, but understand that you are it's a sad thing you've got to think about. Right. And of course, if, it, if it's happy music, you have to think in a happy way about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So film composers will score music to make sure that the right emotional context is present for whatever the visuals are that you have. Exactly. Yeah. Makes and the perfect great sense. example of playing with that, and I think you and I might have talked about this too at, uh, at the party we were at, was, um, was what film music theorist called the louis armstrong paradox mm. did we talk about the louis armstrong paradox no i don't think so so there's this thing called the louis armstrong paradox which is all about it's a wonderful life mm-hmm. right which is mm-hmm. a song we all know and they, they did a couple of studies on it the kind of the emotional impact of that and they found this really curious thing that in fact roughly half the population believes that it's a wonderful life is a happy song mm. and roughly half the other half of the population roughly is surprised by this and is convinced that it's a sad song terribly Mm. depressed song and both halves are equally astonished to learn that the other half exists people are like what how is that possibly a happy song it's one of the saddest songs ever interesting and and the the visualization of that and if you've seen this film it's often um, an indicator of which of those two camps you fall into Uh, it's the robin uh, williams movie um good morning vietnam oh right okay yeah have you have you seen that yeah, yes, I have yeah so it features in that film, right so yes. uh, Robin Williams plays the d j and of course, he's playing music from that era, and he plays it's a wonderful life, and the visual images that are shown in the movie to accompany the music are all of these horrific pictures of Vietnam atrocities, mm. right. Villages being napalmed. It's you know villagers screaming in terror as they're running down laneways and you know people being shot and Mm -hmm. and casualties and blood. You know all of these things, and it's and it's a fascinating exercise of combining um, musical content. So Mm -hmm. that's the musicology Mm -hmm. and lyrical content because taken as a poem, the lyrics say something, and visual content is kind of a third stream because the three of them then have this really interesting triangle of relationship where the music tends to be emotionally neutral, but when you compare the lyrics to the visuals, the visuals seem to be saying that the lyrics are nonsense. Mm -hmm. The lyrics are saying, you know, it's a beautiful world and there's a lot to be happy about. The visual content is saying, no, that's nonsense. We're awful. As a species, we're terrible. We we do terrible things to each other. Mm -hmm. We don't deserve to live on the face of the planet, right? The day we all get wiped out is probably a mercy. And, and in that kind of context in that dialogue between the visual and the, and the textual, the music then actually appears more sad than it is happy. Yes. It's slow, swelling strings and it kind of, it slides from key to key. And there's like this melancholy sense that gives you again, that peek into the ineffable where the music seems to be saying, let's agree that this is true on one level. Let's agree that we are awful and that mm-hmm. war is terrible and that we probably are doomed to failure But the music tells us that, you know, there might be a chance in there somewhere that maybe we're going to be able to make it work. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can transcend our baser instincts. Maybe it can be a beautiful world because there is beauty in the world, even though sometimes it's hard to see it. And it's in there somewhere if only we can find it. And if you're optimistic, you say to yourself, yes, it's not a wonderful world, but it could be. And if you're a pessimist, you say, you know, it's not a wonderful world, and I don't think it's ever going to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting, you know, on that topic, um, that's the thing that fascinates me the most about classical music is that without lyrics, you know, it's open to interpretation. The music is so some people may find it sad, some people may find it uplifting.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to read um, film film sort of musicology um, essays when people actually try to write about what music means you can always tell that you're in the presence of an amateur when they start talking about lyrical content instead of musicology content Mm -hmm. so and i I had to read a ton of these for my degrees right so you find these articles online and they talk about the emotional impact of song x and you get really excited as a student you're like great somebody's actually going to talk about how this music makes me feel and you pull up the article and it's actually an analysis of the poem Mm. that that is the lyrics, right? And it talks about this lyric and that lyric, and that's not what I was looking for. It's like, well, I didn't, if I wanted poetry analysis, I would be into poetry. Like this doesn't actually talk about music; it's just talking about lyrics. Yeah. But that's because it's in, it's really difficult to talk about. It's almost impossible to describe to somebody why your favorite song is your favorite song without either talking about the lyrics or without getting sucked into really specialized. Um, musical notation language mm-hmm. right so if you're a musician you might be able to say things like oh you know i compose this in the saddest of all keys mm-hmm. right which mm-hmm. is obviously the key of g sharp mm-hmm. right and and i'm especially sad where the g sharp does a transposition into the major third you know arpeggio blah 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 i'm making it mm-hmm. up i don't even know language <laughs> but it, it's the kind of language that only musicians can talk to each other yes and and I was never interested in notational language because who the hell knows notational language? It's nonsense. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to talk to people at a ping pong party about why song X freaks you out. And there's yeah. no point in talking about G sharps and F naturals when you do that. Exactly. You need a different language. But it's actually really hard to do.
0: But, you know, it's fascinating. And I, and I would encourage people to take the time to do that. And I think that the, you know, our discussion here is reflective of that because you know for me I think it's a worthwhile exercise and in my book I mean I didn't get nearly this detailed about you know why music makes us sad or happy or otherwise but I took a pretty good stab at it and um, you know I would hope that people would be encouraged to do the same. Oh I'm totally going to read it man
1: it'll be the step <laughs> two so I'm going to read it and then we can go from there that's awesome.
0: I think you're going to like it
2: <laughs> Great
0: <laughs> Alright well thank you so much for your time today sir I appreciate it this you're has been, welcome. by far, of all of the shows that I've done, the most enlightening. I learned a ton. And, and uh, you know, when we're done here, I think I'm going to go online and completely geek out on the, on the subject.
1: <laughs> well, absolutely my pleasure, Brent. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed myself. You're very welcome.
0: Take care. All right. You've been listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Charles Bleach. Until next time, take good care, my friends.
1: Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Separate, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.